Welcome to the podcast of the Urban Mystic. This is season two where we meet with fellow deconstructors, fellow journeymen and journeywomen to hear the story of their first experience of God calling to ministry, deconstruction and present journey. I really enjoyed our guest for this episode, Dr. Dion Forster. He is quite a prolific writer and author who's engaging quite a bit in the political space. I, I really enjoyed hearing uh, the, the, his history, his work history, his professional history, history, as someone who's been quite successful in the ministry, but then who just deconstructed his own calling and has landed up defining himself as an academic for the church. This is a two-parter, we had it as one conversation. And I just thoroughly enjoyed the section, especially where there's a bit of pushback between Dion and I, in terms of our wrestling around the institution of the church and the, and the necessity of it. And uh, it was just a great conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I'm looking forward to engaging him more in the future. Yeah, I, I echo that. I was, I was really hopeful, you know, in, in initially chatting with Dion before we did our, our recording, that, you know, he would bring his, his, his academic thought and his rigor to bear in the conversation, and he really did. Uh, it was very cool to engage with him. Well thought out and well researched, um, and I think he brings that flavor through quite strongly. But also what I really enjoyed was, uh, again, you know, and I think we see this now to be a, a bit of a thread as we've heard all the recordings coming. And so for the listener, I'm, I'm hoping this is going to be something that you look forward to. A real thread of vulnerability that comes through from quite a few of our guests as they share quite deeply of their stories. And I must admit, I was completely unprepared for, for the start of Dion's story, which you'll hear right now as we kick off. Which was which was quite something to to hear of sort of where he's come from and where he is now, and and so that I enjoyed as well. I must admit that was uh, that was a surprise to me. We take people at face value, <laughs> and so I took him at the face value of this neat, polished, academic, you know, kind of person. And just to hear his his story and his background, it it just adds uh, another like like a layer of dimensionality that is often that can be unexpected. You know, we don't. We don't often have conversations with people where we really delve into their life experience. And I, I, I just thoroughly appreciated the, the, the level of vulnerability at which, at which he shared. It's really quite disarming and it, it just adds a, a layer of understanding and perspective on who he is as a person and why he is so passionate about the things that he is passionate about. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, from, from the listener's perspective, if you go and check Dion out online, you'll pick that up through a lot of his writings and a lot of his interactions. And I've, I've been privileged to know him a little bit personally. And I think that, that how you see him online also is, uh, is who that, that, that person that you're talking about, that's who he really is. Very gracious and compassionate. Um, but also, as you'll hear, as we've just spoken about just now, he doesn't suffer fools gladly, but in a very compassionate way. And so what I mean by that is I think he's quick to pick up on debates and to put his finger on critical issues. And I see that in some of his current work around uh, some gender-based issues and sexuality issues you know, that he's doing um, through his varsity work at the moment and also his life and witness. So it was just really cool privilege to, to chat with somebody of that caliber as, as one of our, our early deconstructors in terms of, of where they, they fall in our, in our season. Dion, thanks so much for joining us. And it's, uh, we're so grateful that you've given up this time to come and have a convers conversation with us. 
and we're really looking forward to that conversational element this evening um, and some lovely back and forth around, uh, around your thoughts and some of our thoughts and questions, etc. So thank you very much. Oh, only, a, only a pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. So. Well, well, with that in mind, um, you know, for some people, it ends up being a singular question and for others, it ends up being a two-part question. You know, there's two different answers to it, depending on how intertwined the, the event and the experience is. Would you mind starting off just telling us about your first real experience of God, as well as your experience of calling? You know, how did you get into this wonderful career called ministry? Well, I mean, you know, Tim and, and, and Steve, just firstly to say thanks so much for the joy of being with you tonight and, and the space to be able to reflect on these things and talk about them. Um, that, that really is a great gift to me. And uh, I've, I've so enjoyed listening to your, your podcast and, and the earlier episodes. It's, it's been an absolute blessing. So thanks for that. Yeah, I mean, okay, to, to, to get to the question um, of my first experiences of God, you know, I'm, I'm one of those folks who I think has always had a sense of the spiritual. I, I can't remember a time in my life where I didn't recognize the, the presence of the transcendent and the sacredness of, of life and, um, you know, the, the reality of, of something greater than me existing. And, and that, you know, for, for the first part of my life didn't really have um, that much form. So, you know, part of my own story um, is that, you know, my parents were divorced when I was very young. They came to, well, my mom came to South Africa with my brother and I, and things went quite badly wrong um, right at a very early age. Um, by the time I was around six years old, um, my my biological mother had had a series of very bad and abusive relationships. And um, I remember one night, the guy that she was with coming home, we were living in, in a rented house in a little place called Cullinan outside of Pretoria. And this guy was a drunk and he was a very violent drunk. And him coming home one night, I think I was about six years old, five, six years old at the time. And um, something had set him off. He came home drunk and he started uh, beating my mother, which he'd done, you know, numerous times before. My brother, who was two years older than me, um, Robin, so he was probably eight or, or, or nine years old at the time, tried to defend her. And uh, I remember it's such a vivid image in, 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 in my memory how he just, you know, with a backhand whacked him and his head hit the wall and he was unconscious. And within a few minutes, you know, my mother was also unconscious and he, he was just kicking her and kicking her and wouldn't stop. And I, I ran into the kitchen and, um, you know, was looking for something to, to defend her. I mean, you can imagine a little kid and found a, a, a 10 pound hammer, <laughs> one of those huge hammers. And, and um, yeah, I, I hit him and he fell to the ground and suddenly there was just absolute silence. You know, there, there were three people and they were lying on the floor and there was absolute silence. And, and I really thought that, that everybody was, was dead. And I remember, you know, we, we were living on a sort of a small holding. So it was a walk to the neighbor's house of maybe, you know, maybe it took five or 10 minutes to get there. It wasn't just, you know, from one house to the next. And I remember 
you know, sort of jogging to the, the neighbor's house to go and ask for help and, and on the way praying. You know, I'd no I'd no concept of what it meant, but but I was beseeching God to say, you know, let this be turned around, let let this be different, let there be goodness, let there be blessing. Obviously, these are you know retrospective namings of things, but but those feelings were coming through and and um you know, got to the neighbor's house and said to them, look, you, you know, you, you better come and help us. I think everyone is dead. And, um, you know, him coming across and eventually ambulances. And and after that, you know, my life changed quite significantly. I, mean, I was in foster care and experienced both the best and, and some of the more broken aspects of society. So people who were incredibly generous and good who would take someone else's child, someone else's children, and care for them like they were their own, but then also other people who, who weren't so good, you know. So I think throughout that, you know, I, I, I never really had a period in my life where I didn't believe, but, um, but there was this deep sense of, of being connected with God, of recognizing that there is a power and that this power is good, this this power longs to address evil and brokenness. So that was that was an experience. What happened then was, by the time I, I turned twelve, um, my father, who was still living in in Zimbabwe in Rhodesia, um, managed to emigrate to South Africa, and and he got custody of of my brother and I. But I mean, you can imagine we were already you know feral young things. You know, <laughs> we were as wild as can be. And uh, I mean, you know, he was a he, he's he's passed away since he was a, a, a very beautiful, gentle man, but not a person of of any faith. You know, um, there was no sort of faith there. And the only faith that I had experienced was the kind of stuff you get through the RCFFFE. You know, the the association for uh, Christian Christelijke Vrouwenfederatie and that kind of sort of tepid faith. You know. But so, so I knew that wasn't that wasn't where I belonged, and and I knew that I didn't share the sort of um, secular dispositions that my dad had. But but I had no concept of what what it might mean to have um, a faith experience. Anyway, so by the time I turned um, fifteen or so, I, I'd already had a world of trouble. I mean, you know, I'd been caught smoking dope at school and I already had my first tattoos you know I mean I was just oh. <laughs> that sounds 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 like a balanced upbringing to me personally <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, anyway so I had a girlfriend uh, who, who I, I quite liked and her parents for some reason didn't want me to see her can you imagine you know 15 year old of my caliber what is wrong with him <laughs> yeah and so the only place that I could see her was was um, there was some supervised contact at school. I mean, obviously the school was incredibly cautious of, of kids like me. And she decided, or her parents had decided that she would go to confirmation classes at the local Methodist church. And I thought, this is fantastic. I mean, I'll, I'll do this thing, you know. It'll get everyone off my back and I get to see my girlfriend. And um, so went with her to the Boxburg Central Methodist Church at, at Boxburg Lake. We started out there, and a few weeks in, we went on our confirmation camp, and they they caught the two of us in bed together. So we were kicked out of confirmation, 
So I ended up going up the road um, to the Sunwood Park. It wasn't even yet a church. They were meeting in a, in a, a church hall, and there was a, a new young minister there, a guy called Derek Wilson, and he was just so patient. I mean, you know, I, I, he, he, he just he cared and he loved and he listened, you know. So I remember this is, this is the point we're coming to. Um, I remember before we could get confirmed, we had to go and see him at his house. That's where his office was because there wasn't a church building. And I remember the afternoon, you know, making my way down to his house um, in the early 1980s, you know, wearing leather bondage pants with earrings in my ears, you know, a real sort of punk's not dead kind of guy. And I arrived at Derek's house and, and he was actually uh, busy uh, on a phone call and I sat in his office. And, and when I sat down, um, I experienced such an incredible presence of the spirit of God. I mean, nothing was said, nothing was done, but just in that moment, I experienced the, the power of God's spirit uh, on my life. And, you know, it was a sort of an affirmation that said, Dion, you don't have to be anything. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to change anything. You just, just recognize that you are loved. And that, that was a, that was a very, very dramatic um, spiritual experience for me. And out of that, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, at that very moment, I, I knew that, that I was called to a ministry of service, that, that the rest of my life would be spent in service of God and in service of God's will for people. So, I mean, you know, obviously there've been many iterations of that, you know, that was, that was, you know, where are we now? It was 30 something years ago that that happened. Um, but it, it, it sort of stayed with me, you know, uh, throughout my life, just that closeness of, of, of God and, and the nature of God as, as being loving and the nature of God's love for me. Do you mind if, uh, if Stephen, I just uh, probe some of the elements of, uh, of this uh, story? Yeah. yeah, please, please do. So I, I must say I'm, I am presently looking at your at your at your mugshot, which is of you in a suit. <laughs> so, so, so you've clearly changed the way you 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 dressed <laughs> from 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 those days as you describe yourself. But but an upbringing like that, uh, it, it carries a stigma, and there's a lot of there's a whole world of of experience in that where where I think you get to see the you get to see the dark underbelly of the world as well as some of the silver lining. How does that carry through for you into your life and your relationships and your work and things like that these days? Yeah. So Tim, I mean, I can say that, you know, and, and this is, this is quite an important thing for, for how my, my own faith experience is constructed. Um, for me, there's not a tremendous amount of separation between what some would call the psychological and the spiritual. Uh, and the physical. I mean, these things are sort of interconnected in, in my life and experience. And there's, there's a sense in which, you know, many of the experiences that I've been through as a child have left psychological imprints upon me. Um, you know, you, you, you have memories and, and sometimes I think even wounds, you know, that you carry with you um, be, because of, of life. And so, 
you know, the one thing that I can say is that I, I hope certainly, and I've tried to to accentuate this in, in, in my, my ministry and in my life, that because I had experienced what it is to be young and vulnerable, uh, what it is to be in the care of others, what it is to be powerless when others have power, um, what it is to face injustice with no choice of your own. Those elements of compassion I've tried to incorporate into my, my way of being in the world. You know, so, so when I was a minister, for example, you know, I tended naturally to, to be drawn towards um, persons who were suffering or struggling. You know, that was, a, that was an aspect of, of, of my ministry. Um, you know, even now, I mean, you know, I, I teach at a university. The kind of research that I do um, often touches on on issues related to justice and vulnerability and and opening up systems of power and abuse, particularly in religious spaces, that comes through the abuse of power and and the you know the misshaping of, of religion and, and, and those kinds of things. So there, there is something about that, which, which some might call psychological, but I, I would also say that there's a redeeming quality in that. I mean, for me, there, there has been an experience that I, I think everyone lives with brokenness in different forms. Uh, and for some, it comes early and for some, it comes late. I mean, just now recently, I, I've, I've had contact with people who, at advanced age have lost the love of their life, you know? Um, I mean, that's, that's brokenness in a form. And so all of us live with these kinds of things. And I think they, they tend to shape not only what we need, but how we make meaning of the world and, and what we find to be spiritual and, and sacred and important. Did you uh, go into foster homes via a place of safety or a, or a children's home of some kind? Yeah, so obviously, I mean, what happened was um, that that evening, you know, with, with the event that we, uh, that I spoke about earlier, that uh, what my, my mom actually ended up with, with a broken back. And so we were, you know, taken through the welfare system with, with social workers and, and then from there, you know, in, into the care of, of, of others. So, you know, it was, and I mean, this is actually also an interesting thing. I know it's not directly related to what we're talking about but you know it's quite remarkable if you think about it Tim you know here I am an, an almost 50 year old and simply by virtue of the fact that I was white in South Africa in the early 80s you know I was cared for it was a social system that took care of me and and educated me and you know formed me and you know now I have one of the most privileged lives in, in all of the world you know so so there is a sense in which, you know, even that um, plays into my faith. You know, I'm constantly thinking about contemporaries of mine who, who had functional families that simply by virtue of the fact that of, of the blackness of their skin, they had none of those privileges. They, they, they don't have the same opportunities uh, that I have. And some of that, of course, you know, we trace back to the historical religions like Christianity, you know, the kind of worldview that we bring upon the world, you know, the, the whiteness of, of God, the fact that God is this old white man, you know. Yeah, of course, with a big long beard and a big fluffy cat. He doesn't <laughs> yeah. have the fluffy cat, but I would want him to. <laughs> yeah, old Uncle George. Yeah. 
So, you know, again, that's and, and a whole lot of my, my contemporary work, the, the work that I'm, I'm doing now, you know, most of my research is around that. It's around social identity and, and how we read ourselves into faith, but also how our faith often is a reflection of how we view ourselves and society. Thank, thank, thank you for, for speaking so openly about it. I know it's, uh, it, it's difficult things to talk about, you know, and I think for a lot of, uh, for a lot of people, the, the way people think about you changes when they hear those kind of stories as well. I, I particularly like the way you talk about the way it shapes, it shapes your view of society and your view of power systems and the powerlessness, especially minors have within that. But I mean, on an, on an adult stage and an adult life with, you know, structures around us like that as well, we, we as individuals also experience a similar kind of powerlessness. So it's interesting to hear how that uh, and how that taps through. And also just, you know, people talk about disparagingly about the myth of, uh, of white privilege and to to hear the way you phrase that as as a as a white person taken care of and yet other people with functional families don't get to experience some of the benefits that that, that you've received in terms of education and care you know I, I think there's a there's a tremendous amount to it and and uh, I, I'd love to have a conversation with you just on this topic really <laughs> yeah. um, and so yeah you know if you like us enough from 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 tonight it would be nice to do a follow-up at some point <laughs> yes absolutely absolutely Diana, i'm interested in the the sort of the continued journey then into the the fulfillment of the calling into ministry and then the time within the church um you know, specifically given sort of our area of interest, you know, we're talking about people who've been within institution of church and have either battled or started to ask questions or leaving, whether you have any feelings along that trajectory or experience that you'd love to share with us around mm. your journey with the church um, yeah. as you've lived and served within her. Yeah, so, I mean, Steve, my engagement with so as i as i mentioned from from the very beginning um i felt this sense of calling this this call to service i've often since when i've spoken to people um reflected that so i you know i i went on to study theology got ordained as a as a minister in the methodist church and in some senses i did that because the church had modeled for me that this is what you do if you want to honor God and, and serve God in the world, you, 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 you don't get a normal job. You, you don't do that thing. You know, you do this thing because the guy who preaches, most often it is a guy, but occasionally the woman who preaches, they tell you that if you really love God, you're going to do it the way I did it, you know. And I've often reflected on that and thought, I'm actually not sure that, that I actually ever was called to the ordained pastoral ministry. So, I mean, my early uh, uh, ministry had had two elements to it. Um, you know, it was before the end of apartheid when, when I started in the ministry and I was very politically active. And in part, that was because of some of it had to do with, obviously, my, my own experience of, of brokenness and injustice and just being able to recognize the sort of structural injustice in society and I happened to be around people who who could channel that so Paul Varane who was a Methodist minister who was in Soweto was a very strong influence and I ended up 
you know, doing a lot of my ministry in Orlando, West Jabavu, those areas. But the other thing that I also very quickly came to experience, and, uh, you know, one of my first uh, postings as a minister was um, in, in what was then called the Golden West Circuit. So I actually lived in a flat in Carltonville, and I served uh, basically the youth in, in the Carltonville Methodist Church, but then preached in, in Hutsong and Kokosi, the two townships. And it was the recognition that, you know, um, some of the people that I identified with, with most, the people who I looked at and saw, these are the most moral people that I can see in this town. Uh, these are the people who are most generous with their resources. And these are the people who I think are doing what one might consider the work of God. We're not the, the white Christians in the well-of-white church that, that I was in. It, it was the, the Muslim shop owner who, who would feed the people, uh, you know, in the community. And so what ended up happening was that I asked him, could I join you and, and come to Friday prayers? You know, um, it was it was you know the 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 guy who was running the sort of you know store that sold everything from you know huge silver pots to cravats and the latest Nike shoes. Who was a deeply devout Hindu who who you know uh, was talking about you know f fireworks and Diwali and I thought well I, I want to experience that. So what what happened with me was. Um, by the time 1994 came and we'd been through uh, the elections, I'd been a little bit jaded because I'd, I'd seen that the church was still very much racially divided. And what I thought to be Christ-like, I actually didn't see very much of that in, in the members of the church or in, in, in many of, of my contemporaries in ministry. I actually experienced this outside of the church. And I had a bit of a crisis of faith. Um, it was a time where I began to wonder, you know, is Christianity really anything other than just a, a social construction to, to maintain a certain, you know, social entity called the church in society? And I think my, my bishops could see that, that I was, you know, in, in trouble a little bit in that regard. And so they, um, they sent me to Rhodes University to go and do some, some postgraduate study, sort of as a reward. I was newly married. I hadn't yet lived with my wife because of all of the things happening around apartheid and security police and other things. So they said, you guys go off to Grahamstown and, and go and live there and, and do an honours and a master's. And okay. um, it wasn't a punishment that you were sent off to varsity. <laughs> no, I think, okay, it was, cool. I think it was a bit of a reward. I think they were trying to say, look, you know, go and, go and spend a bit of time and meet your wife and... Mm -hmm and decompress a little bit and, and live a little. I mean, I, 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 I don't know how old I was then. I was in my early 20s. So, you know, I, I hadn't really had a childhood because I'd gone straight from, you know, straight from school to varsity, you know, to the army, into, into ministry. So, you know, it was sort of, so, and it was wonderful. And there I met a very, very influential person in my life, Felicity Edwards. So Felicity was professor of Christian spirituality and she was into the weirdest things. You know? <laughs> she used to go every year and spend a couple of months in, in an ashram in, in Shantivanam, you know, the forest of peace in, in, in India. Um, and, and she just 
had such a deep sense of spirituality that I found incredibly attractive. And that set me off um, on a path in, 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 in my own intellectual journey, but also in my spiritual journey to ask the question, um, is my Christian faith real? Can, can it be salvaged? Is there truth to this? Or do I need, need to give it over? And, and that's where really, you know, a lot of the stuff that, that I, I certainly wrote in, 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 you know, in my early academic career, um, you know, that book, uh, An Uncommon Spiritual Path, you know, that was, that was really a quest to find Jesus beyond Christianity. Um, you know, Christ at the center. That was, that was a book where I, I, I was wanting to, to look, are there people in the world who are serving Jesus, but they're not caught up in, in colonialism and in the westernized church? You know, are, are they, is, is there a kind of Christ that is, that is a priori, that comes before social institutions, you know, that exists in mystery, that is, is truer than, than, you know, the priest and his vestments and the church and its buildings and, and all of those things. I'm, I'm interested, unless you're getting to it, given what, you, what you're saying now um, in terms of the search and specifically that wording that captures me is, you know, looking at Jesus outside of Christianity or looking to find Jesus outside of Christianity, if I'm, if I'm remembering your words correctly. I'm, I'm interested um, in the exploration of, you know, the Friday prayers with the Muslim from the corner shop and the invitation to Diwali with the Hindu, um, and then any of this present searching, um, would love to know if you're willing to comment around any of the experiences of those and how that either resonated with previous spiritual experience or not, or difference or nuance or... Oh, absolutely. I mean, Steve, you know, I think, um, you know, part of it needs to be set within the historical context of my own life, what was happening at that, at that stage. So of course, you know, I'd come through um, a period of, of a loss of confidence in aspects of the church and, and was also at the end of, of my first uh, academic qualification in theology. And, you know, studying theology at a university is very different to going to a, a, a Bible college or you know, at, at university, they're teaching a science, you know, so you, you look at Mark's gospel and you see which bits were wrote, written first and which bits were added 300 years later. And you, so, you know, it, you really, you can lose your faith quite, quite easily in those spaces. And, and so what was, what was absolutely important for me was the experience of the mystery of, of who God is. So things like like silence became so so crucial for me to to get beyond names and forms and doctrines and and concepts of God to really just go to the very very center of of my own being created in the image of God and there to encounter the God who is Christ the God who is is self-sacrificing who is giving who is loving who is gentle um, so that kind of mystical experience, which was beyond words and names, it was only later that I began to discover there's actually a wonderfully rich tradition of this, you know, St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila and, you know, I mean, this whole sort of tradition of, 
of Christian mystics, you know. Um, but but for me, that was that was the the most important thing at that stage of of my life was just to reconnect again with the God that I had known, that I'd always known, in a very deep way that that wasn't clouded by by the trappings that had sort of hemmed it in and, and moved it from the inside to the outside. Not that those things don't matter, but in my life at that stage, I found them to be a hindrance. So I've recently been teasing out um, a thought in my head around the, uh, around the fact that we've got almost an ecclesial theology. We've got the theology of the institution of the church, which is what we teach and learn in ministry and at university. And then on the side is the theology of the monastics, you know, which which I think is a bit broader than the early mystical theology, and it, it it's got a phenomenal history and a phenomenal development. But to be to learn theology and to be taught theology is is, is to be exposed to those guys in passing, those guys and girls in passing. But we never really explore it, and yet they're all about the presence of God and the experience of God, and that and and, and how to nurture and cultivate that. And I feel like it's a it's a tremendous loss. You know, I think I think in many ways. Uh, the church is tremendously impoverished because of it. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think there is an awakening amongst many Christians. I mean, many people of all faiths, you know, it's not just Christians. You, you know, you have the Sunnis and, you know, Shambhala. And, I mean, in, in, every, in every historic religion, there are, are renewal groups um, that, that are wanting to say, you know, and and part of it, I think, is you know we find ourselves in a time in history which is right at the edge of late modernity, the beginnings of postmodernity. You know, fifty, sixty years ago, I mean, your minister was pretty knowledgeable. You know, if you wanted to figure things out, she or he, most often he, in the, at that stage, was probably the person who had some kind of classical education you know, understood philosophy, could figure out how things worked, would stand in the pulpit and sort of hermeneutically interpret the times in relation to these ancient texts. But nowadays, you know, I mean, if I want to know something, I'm not going to ask my minister, I'm going to Google it. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. So, so there's a sort of, there's a sense in which I think the church has got stuck in an era and the world has moved beyond how we do church and how we think church should be. I mean, it, it always interests me, you know, when I say to my students, you know, the two fastest growing Christian groupings in the world are the Pentecostals on the one end and the Orthodox Christians on the other. And they're actually the same thing because what both of them do is they decenter proclamation. They're not charismatic traditions. They're not there to preach. What both of them do is they facilitate an, an emotional experience, an aesthetic experience, an engagement. With the Pentecostals, it's, you know, heel song, and you can only get on stage if you're attractive and cool and hot, and it has that kind of aspiration. And with, you know, with, with the Orthodox, it's iconography, and it's, it's, you know, incense and smells. And so, so both of them are facilitating an activation of the imagination and the senses which I think in many contemporary churches, we, we, we're, not, we're not getting that right. Protestantism in particular makes sense with the structure when you've got a whole bunch of uneducated peasants in a tight geographic area and you bring them in once a week to teach them and to guide them, right? 
and 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 of course there as you say the minister is is the knowledgeable one is the educated one and and that's that's been the way it's been done but last century education really ramped up and and now the average person is is as educated if not more so and self-educating uh, i struggle with a, with an institution designed an uneducated modern world that's still trying to do what it's always been doing uh, but the world has changed and that's not actually what people need Tim, there's a guy who wrote an absolutely amazing series of books. It's called the Cultural Liturgy Series. His name's Jamie Smith. He's from the States. He's actually a philosopher, but philosopher of religion. The first book that he wrote, there are three books in the series. The first one's called Desiring the Kingdom. The second one is called Imagining the Kingdom. And the third one's called Awaiting the King. But basically what he does in that first book is he says, you know, basically our struggle started with Descartes. You think, you know, in terms of philosophy, Descartes, who had this sort of existential crisis, do I exist? And we all know Descartes' famous statement, you know, cogito ergo sum, I think before I am. So basically what he did was he said, well, I have this crisis of existence. Am I real? Well, the fact that I'm thinking about whether I'm real means that there must be a thinking entity and that's me, therefore I exist. So that was his, that was Descartes' Um, claim. The problem was that that kicked off, you know, after Descartes, we had Francis Bacon and Isaac Newton, and it kicked off um, into the Enlightenment, a privileging of reason and knowledge, so that we end up with, you know, I mean, you, you take, for example, the um, the Reformation. I mean, the Reformation was a clear example of that, you know. We, we begin to believe if we can just preach the right doctrine, society will be changed. When in actual fact, what Jamie Smith rightly points out is that we are not primarily thinking machines. We're emotive animals, you know? I mean, <laughs> just about everything that we do is driven by desire. We, we have to engage our thoughts to say, don't eat too much, you know? I, I mean, if, if we didn't engage our, 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 our reasoning, you know, we'd, we'd be like my pugs, you know, my dogs. If I put food in front of them, they gobble what's there. You know that's why they they're very sh- short and round. You know, so so what Jamie Smith says is 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 he says we're beginning to see in contemporary Christianity, but it's actually it's broader than that. This is why his series is called the Cultural Liturgies. But we're beginning to see that people are inherently religious. We need to believe. We need to make meaning of the world. But what we're doing now is we're seeing these new forms of religion emerge which cause people to make meaning in the shopping mall. So in other words, you go to the shopping mall, it's just like an ancient cathedral. It's beautiful. It's aspirational. There are priests who will take your time. Everywhere there's someone preaching. If you just wore me or looked like me or owned me, your life would be fulfilled. And we buy that, that kind of emotive message and it has no substance. So one of the things he's saying, what Jamie Smith is saying, is he says in book two, you need to reimagine what it means to be Christian. And, and I think you, you put your finger on it, Tim, earlier when you said we have this sort of ecclesiocentric Christianity. And it's not that the church doesn't matter. It matters deeply. But we make a mistake when we think the kind of congregations that we have now are what the church is intended to be. You know, the church is meant to be um, an economic, an external representation of the imminent, the internal life of the Trinity. So if you think about, you know, the persons of God who 
who are, you know, in traditional theology, we speak of this perichoretic self-emptying, mutual indwelling relationship. It's incredibly intimate and deep. It's emotive, it's connected, it's, it's, it's humble. You know, those are the kinds of communities that people are longing for, spaces of meaning and identity that shape them and feed them in ways which, you know, the four latest songs and the catchy five-point thing on PowerPoint isn't going to do. What, um, what, what was the ramp up to this kind of thinking, Dion, and this, this space within your person, um, or the journey, rather, that brought you to, to these sorts of statements that you're making? And, and my background that I've said before to a couple of other guests is part of what I think we're hoping to provide for the listener is a, not so much a blueprint, because journeys are authentically individual, but there are some common threads as people journey through. I've got questions. I'm going to start to engage with the questions myself. I'm going to put them outside of myself and engage in community with the questions that I'm essentially going to deconstruct over time. Were these questions there from the start uh, in terms of the church? You know, you've talked about some of what you'd seen in ministry in Orlando and in Carltonville, et cetera. Did they grow over time? How did that shape you to the person today who's making these statements? Have you been making them for 30 years? Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think so. I wish I had. <laughs> and I hope I, hope, I hope I know better things in 20 years from now than the ones I do now. It's def there's definitely been a growth in, in understanding. So let me say one thing. I mean, I'm actually far more in love with the church now than I was... 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I love the church again. I love it again. And, and in part, why I, I love the church again is because it no longer has a hold over me. I mean, you know, th just think about that, you know, Stephen. When, when is that because of the transition from in ministry in the church to being an academic uh, and in that sense not being career-based in, in a church like that anymore? I mean, that's a large part of it. My goodness, that's a you know, that's a very astute observation. Yes. So, so this is this 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 is a wonderful can of worms, and uh, let's treat it like a Roman candle, light it on one end, and see what comes out. I mean, Tim, that, that is part of it. Um, so I, what happened was, you know, I came to where I live now, Somerset West, in 1997 as a minister, and. Um, I mean, I, I joined a, a church which just took off. I mean, we, we arrived at exactly the right time and who I was and, you know, what I had to offer just fit beautifully. And we, we found, you know, we went from a staff of two to a staff of 19 from a, a group of, of about, you know, 150 on a Sunday morning to about 1,500 in multiple services on a Sunday. So this thing just took off over a period of about five years. But it was one of the emptiest times of my life. I mean, you know, to answer you, uh, Tim, that, 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 that really was for me a career thing. And Steve, what, what, what you said earlier, where did I learn this? That, that was one of the, the, the places where I learned, actually, I'm, I, I don't think that I'm a career minister because, because I... I I wasn't committed to the numerical growth of the congregation, which is necessary in some forms. It was incredibly empty for me. It was, 
it was very difficult. So that was when I finished my PhD and, and my bishop offered me a chance to go and teach at the seminary. And, and, and that's, Steve, actually when we met. I went to teach at John Wesley College. And in the evenings, I used to preach at the Bryanston Methodist Church, which, which I loved. It was a great community. But, you know, there was a sense in which even there, I mean, Bryanston was also this sort of little mega church where there was a brilliant worship team and, you know, they sort of warmed the crowd and I would go out there and, you know, do my bit. Yeah, I'd do my bit. And, I mean, you know, it was sort of a combination of, in some senses, I think it was sort of highbrow theological stand-up. I'd, I'd figured out how to how to wrap some of these ideas in a way which was entertaining and, and engaging for people. And but there wasn't enough there, you know. It wasn't. I didn't think that I was doing anything that was truly sort of meaningful in that regard. So what what happened was, you know, I, I got more and more unhappy. In, in church and eventually in 2008 I remember I just said to my wife I, I'm going to die here you know so I resigned that was it <laughs> I phoned, phoned my bishop and said look you know I'm, I'm leaving I have a friend here in Cape Town who was running a business he needed someone to come and work do you know sort of manage a section of his business and work in the sort of ethics, social responsibility side of things. And I said, that's it. I'm, I'm out of here, you know. And for probably five years, I didn't want anything to do with the church because I'd just been so disappointed, you know. So. <laughs> and Dion, if, if you had to put your finger on, on a couple of specifics uh, in terms of that emptiness, that fascinates me. Um, you know, you, you talk about the the slick worship team and crafting a message that kind of just flows and, and hits people. Um, what were the areas that you were, that you were desperately missing uh, in the, in the emptiness? If I can ask that. Yeah. I'd say j just to say, I mean, I, I think the, the important thing here, Steve, is that, you know, a lot of this is personality based and, you know, I, I was just absolutely exhausted by, by having to, to facilitate uh, what we would call an attractive church model. Um, so I could see friends. I mean, you know, my friend Kevin Needham, who was running a Teze service. Um, you know, my friend Alan Story, who was, you know, opening his church so that people could come and live in it. You know, I could see those things and say, wow, I think that I, I'm, I'm closer to that. That's, that's what I want to be doing. But this thing that I've got here, which is now growing, it's an animal I've created and I've hired people and have to pay their salaries. And there's an expectation that we'll fill the thing every Sunday. And it was just exhausting. And for me, it, it lacked a kind of depth of spirituality that, that was life-giving. It, you know, I, I, I knew that when I left that church, it would right-size very quickly. You know, within a matter of a year or two, all the people who were looking for attractional churches would find other attractive churches to go to. And they did, you know. They moved down the road to the church that had the better worship team and, and the higher resolution data projector and better PowerPoint slides. You know? <laughs> what, what, what you needed to do was skip the skinny jeans and go straight to the leather. And I think you would have upped ante to the max. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although when, when I left, when I left, it wasn't yet skinny jeans, you know, we were still baggy in those days. 
the, the bootleg was still a thing, you know. But now it's all skinny jeans and plaid shirts, you know. But, you know, just to come back to, to what I say, I, mean, I, I now realize I, I, I made so many mistakes. And some of them with, with, with the mistakes of ego in your late 20s, early 30s. They were aspects of masculinity and hyper-masculinity. They were aspects of my own childhood and upbringing, the need to belong, the need to be liked, the need to perform. Um, you know, if I don't keep these people happy, they won't, you know, next week I'll sit on my own in the children's home. They won't invite me back. Like, there's some of that stuff you have to work through. You know, you have to get through it and say, well, I've now realized that's, you know, that's not, that's not who I am. That's not the kind of Christianity that I want. And, you know, the, the, the kind of things that I get to do now are beautiful. You know, I, I counsel people. I sit with people in silence. Occasionally I preach. Um, I think about a lot of things and write some things. Um, and and I, I go into a community where, where I don't hold any agency, authority, or power. I'm there because I'm just a, a pilgrim amongst other pilgrims, you know. I found it I found it very meaningful to be back in the church now. And and those five years in between, what did you do in those five years? Did you change careers? Did you? Yes. What did I do in those five years? <laughs> so um, the guy who the guy who uh, I, I worked for here, um, he came to faith in in our church in Somerset West when our church was really, you know, growing at a very very rapid rate. He and his family came to our church and came to faith, and he had quite a a radical um, conversion experience. He was the owner of a very, very large um, civil engineering company. And um, he also, when he came to faith, he, he, he turned not only himself around, his business, his family, but also became quite involved in, in a number of social enterprises. So during that period of time, and that was actually a very important period for me, um, I. I came into his business and found that I was doing ministry. So, you know, people treated me like the corporate chaplain. I mean, you know, they would ask me, would you come and say a prayer for this thing? Uh, someone's just had a bereavement. You know, please, could you, would you be willing to visit them? Um, we're needing someone to help us to to discern what should happen in the business. I mean, of course, you know, the language that they used was far more corporate. You know, they treated me like like a guy who had a PhD who was working as a sort of guy in a business, but it was ministry. And I found I was actually, I was actually a minister just without a pulpit, you know, in this, in this business. And, and after some years, I realized actually, okay, I am called, I am called. It's probably not to congregational ministry, but I am called to service. And, um, you know, so, so that was a move for me.